And then they flew together in silence under the cover of night from Miles, Phoenix, and the man with huge albatross wings. He was flying effortlessly. She, however, was struggling a bit because she wasn't used to the ache of her muscles. She was pumping so hard trying to keep up with him. Her muscles were aching in her back, but she kept up. Eventually, they reached the blackness of the night ocean. And that's where he finally turned around and looked at her. He didn't say a thing. He just pointed a long finger straight ahead, and then he flew away from her, back towards the city. No goodbye, no words of wisdom. He was just out. He had led her to the ocean, but why? She decided to take a brief break on top of the submerged buildings. Well, they were mostly submerged, but the tips of the buildings were um, out of the water. And she was able to take a brief respite. And, of course, the New York City pigeons were there. (laughs) And they kept her company, looking at her wings like, what are you? What are you doing? And she sat, her and the pigeons... And as she sat, she had a vision of a place that was full of sunshine. She felt like the alien seed she had tucked safely inside of her dress was speaking to her through telepathy. And she looked out over the edge of the building that she was sitting on top of, and she saw images of another place, a place somewhat like New York City, with people who looked like her, but it was far It wasn't even in the United States kind of far. How would she get there? She did have these wings, so on impulse, she just took a running start and flew. She caught a gust of wind, and she started her flight out across the ocean. Thankfully, her body adjusted nicely to flight. She didn't need to eat, pee, poop, or sleep. Her stomach just knotted up into a real, real tight knot and held everything together, but her back muscles ached for the first few days. That was the only way to build up her flying muscles, though, so she just flew through the pain. She was um, following the seed. The seed was like a mysterious navigation device, and it was guiding her forward. After a while, though, she did learn how to fly without flying, like just like an albatross. And the definition of an albatross is a very large oceanic bird, some of which have wingspans greater than 10 feet. They use their formidable wings to glide for hours without rest or the need to flap their wings. So she was adjusting to flight in similar ways that the albatross, which is a real bird, flies. She was able to um, fly for hours when the wind was right and she didn't have to do a thing. She just kind of glided like a glider does. So once the pain stopped, she was able to notice the beauty of the ocean, which was blue by day and black by night. The world was real different for her now. And then finally, finally, she saw the coast of Africa. She landed and immediately met a kind old Sierra Leonean woman who happened to speak perfect English. 
and wasn't afraid of women with wings. The Sierra, the Sierra Leonean woman fed Phoenix fried fish, baked cassava bread, and thick, tasty okra soup. She also gave her a burqa, and a burqa is like that outer garment that Islamic women wear that covers the body um, fully and sometimes the face of a woman. But Phoenix was like, and Phoenix knew what it was because, you know, she's a reader and she read thousands of books. So she was very aware of what the burqa was. But she protested. She was like, no, I respect the religion, but I'm not. And the woman told her, listen, you will need to pick and choose who sees what you are. So Phoenix had to think about it. The burqa was a great idea. So she took the burqa from the old woman. She slept for two days, met the entire family, and then she was off on her journey again. Although she had reached a coast in West Africa, the seed still propelled her forward. That wasn't where it it wanted to be um, planted at. So she followed the the lead of the seed, and it led her to a northern town in Ghana, a northern village in Ghana called Wuluku, and it led her to a small shea butter tree farm specifically. And when she got to that farm, she dropped to her knees at the base of the largest shea tree and just began to dig with her fingers. She dug a hole about three feet deep, and as she was digging, she was glowing from the seed, and her and the seed affected all of the trees, and so they were bursting, bursting with shea seed, shea seeds, and the villagers saw this, and they absolutely welcomed her coming to their village. She came into their village bringing abundance, so they were absolutely happy to see her. They named her Okore, which meant eagle without even knowing she had wings on her back. She was wearing the burqa. So her new name was Phoenix Okore, and she was absolutely happy to be there. It was the first time she had actually been a part of a community. They invited her to their weddings, their birthdays, their births, their burials, their all of their celebrations. And because she had brought such abundance to their village, they actually built her... Um, a small two-story home, her very first home of her own. And it was just a very, very good time for her. Some of the women even helped her cultivate a small garden of her own. And it just was like the greatest time of her life. She was actually able to relax and put the weight of America behind her. A woman with wings should never be so burdened. That's a direct quote from the book. I love that line, right? A woman with wings should never be so burdened. Mm. So nobody in this new home of hers asked her where she came from or what she was. They just assumed she was a hunchback and that was okay with them too. The men didn't mind, not a bit. Some of them even proposed marriage to her. They liked her face. That's all they could see. They liked her face. But there was one specific man that understood that she was more than just a face. His name was Kofi Ata'anan. He was named after the United Nations diplomat. 
for him she considered taking her burqa off. So the day, well, before I get that far, just a little bit of a, a back um, drop to their story, they had gotten to know each other pretty well. They had, um, he lived about a mile from her home. His home was small and had running water. He was one of the few people who could afford fuel for his generator. He was tall with a strong, clear voice. And that's what she liked about him. You never know what's going to attract you to somebody, right? For her, it was his, his clear voice. And also that he was a kind, kind, kind doctor. He was kind to all of his patients. Imagine seeing a doctor that actually knew how to treat people with human kindness after what she'd been through. So, of course, that attracted her to him as well. And he always asked permission before he touched his patients. He respected their bodies. That was important to her. So she approached him first. And when she did, he smiled so wide at her. That was the clincher. Like he was happy to see her. He really saw her. And that's important for some people to be seen by the person that they're going to. Mm they could potentially get intimate with. So she had gone to the market um, on their first lunch together and she had gotten some jollof rice, two oranges and two drinks and waited patiently and watched him while he worked. And after that first lunch, they ate lunch together every day. Things were very, very good between them. He never asked about the hump on her back. And even when they kissed, he just kissed her with his lips. He kept his hands to himself. So it was really cute. So the day that she finally decided that she was going to take off her burqa for him, she um, took a walk from her home. And again, it was about a mile from her home to his. She walked past the Great Sandstone Mosque. She walked past um, the nice, quiet homes and small stretches of farmland and past the grayish green cell phone tower that the people had a love-hate relationship with and past the one hotel that was in the village and before she got to the hospital she saw something else that wasn't usually there at the hotel it was a fresh-looking vehicle a bunch of fresh-looking fresh-looking vehicles And on the side of the vehicles, it was the Big Eye logo, which is a hand grasping Spears of Lightning. When I first read that the Big Eye vehicles were there at the hotel, I was like, oh no, they found Phoenix. But that wasn't the case. They were there on business as usual. The older villagers knew that they would come they would come around harvest time all the time and they were used to them so the the older villagers would just sell them products and keep it moving keep it just business but the younger people specifically the young girls thought that it would benefit them somehow to associate with these 40 white men that had come there were no women it was 40 white men and They would cook for them, clean for them, get dressed up, try to look pretty for them or whatever. Phoenix just stayed out of their way. 
She just stayed in her lane, let the families handle what they were handling with them. She wanted to keep herself safe. She had enough for the big guy, right? But one night, while she was out and about flying, she witnessed a red, red eye. And the villagers called these white men red, red eyes because red eyes stood for danger, demons, envy, and jealousy. And so these particular men had come into their village and done all these kinds of things to them. So of course they called them red, red eye. And Phoenix witnessed one of the red, red eyes manhandling a young girl. So she couldn't just not do anything at that point. So she swooped down in the middle of the situation and she knocked him over. And he got mad, of course. Like, who is this? Because he, she had her wings out. So when the young girl saw her wings, she was unfazed by it. But when the red-eyed guy saw her wings, he was like, are you an angel? And he was apologetic at first. He was also very, very, very drunk. And so he was trying to put it on his being drunk. He was trying to say that this place the people always made him get out of control at first. And then he just was like, you know what? I'm going to get what I came for with her because I paid her. So him and Phoenix got into it or whatever. And as Phoenix was saying what she said to him, she just was like, leave, just leave us. That's all she asked of him. Just leave. And then the man was like, she's, um, he stopped talking to Phoenix. He started talking to girl. the girl. You want me to tell your mother you a whore? And Phoenix told him, every one of the girls who comes to you is a whore. We know that. All of us know that. But they're still ours. And that made the man mad. He just started balling up his fists. And he lunged at her. And when he lunged at her, She slapped him upside his head as hard as she could, and he fell. She heard a crack, but she didn't think nothing of it. She thought that he was just knocked unconscious. And um, she and the girl left him there. But he wasn't unconscious. He was definitely dead. Hours later, she heard loud banging on her door. And she just knew it was them coming to get her, but it wasn't. It was the young girl she had saved from being raped by the white man, Sarah. Sarah's face was scratched and swollen and bleeding, and she had tears streaming down her face, and she was apologizing profusely. But Phoenix didn't know what she was apologizing for. And then she warned Phoenix that they were coming for her. She told Phoenix her mother had beat her after the white man had been found dead because she was the last one seen with him. Her mother had beat her in front of Big Eye until she told all of them what happened. Phoenix heard and saw the helicopters that had followed Sarah to her home, but the helicopters didn't land. They went, they retreated. They went back into the into the trees, and she knew they wouldn't be gone for long. So without no shoes, nothing, just she jumped in Sarah's car. Sarah was 16, so she had a car, a beat-up car, but it was still a car. They jumped in Sarah's car, and they, they made it away from there as quickly as the old beat-up car could go. And they were on um, the way to Kofi's house. Where else would she go um, at that at that short of a notice? 
as they were on their way to Kofi's house, they heard her home, the one and only home she ever really knew, being completely destroyed because Big Eye didn't know she had left. So they had, um, they thought they were destroying her inside of her home. And when they didn't find her, they just destroyed everything that was there. So they get to Kofi's house and Kofi was waiting outside because he had heard the big boom of her house being destroyed and he welcomed her in. They told Sarah to leave. And when they told Sarah to leave, they told Sarah, tell everybody to flee. Everybody in the village just go because she knew Big Eye was about to tear stuff up. So, again, Kofi welcomed her in, and he um, told her some of the story of his life, how his family was taken away by Big Eye previously, and they knew that they could both attempt to fly away, to attempt to escape, um, because she could fly, she could just, you know, take him up in her wings, but instead, they just decided to turn on his portable and stream their story live. This was a chance to tell their story their way in their own words. And when you live stream, it's it's not edited. It's just you is really happening in real time. So they started talking about how she was an accelerated organism from Tower 7. He let the world know he was an MD in Ghana, where they were in Wulugu. And um, he was touching her feathers and they were being, they were acting like they had all the time in the world. And at the point where it got too personal for live stream, they shut it off. And right after he told her how lovely she was, Big Eye burst into his small house and, of course, told Kofi to get away from her and all of that. But Kofi wouldn't step away from her. He... Um, instead had taken up arms. He went into his closet and had got and he had gotten his gun. And she said, this is one of my favorite lines in the book, um, when she talked about Kofi. She said, I loved Kofi. He was the gentlest man I'd ever met. Wulugu needed him more than anything. Who else had been born and raised here? Educated and trained elsewhere, yet returned to give back. Who else? He was just a kind heart. So he stepped in front of her and raised his gun, of course, to no avail. She covered his dying physical form in her wings. And as he was dying, she couldn't help but think of Saeed in that moment too, as she lost Kofi. At the same time, she just burned again and she watched his face as she put him out of his misery. And as the house exploded around her, she noticed something strange. It was a black slit of an opening within all the chaos, the burning and the chaos and the things going on. There was this black opening like a slit. So she raised her hand, noticing at the time that her hand was metal and not bone. She raised her metal hand and she slipped her hand through the black slit and it disappeared into the blackness. She brought her hand back out and her hand appeared again. And then she was gone. And then after seven days, she's alive again. And she's in the pit that used to be Kofi's home. Back in the grasp of the Big Eye Corporation. And she felt like a villain. She was blaming herself for the death and destruction that seemed to follow her everywhere. First Saeed, now Kofi. It was a lot. 
She knew she was still in Ghana. Her skin was still brown, but her formerly green glow that would glow from her in, the inside of her out, it was now red. And to top things off, she heard a familiar voice, a familiar unwelcome voice, Boomy. Boomy was pointing a gun with her, pointing a gun down to her, down at her, like all of the soldiers surrounding the pit that she was in. So she came up out of the pit and um, she gave them no trouble, no fight, no flight. The villagers wanted to fight for her though because they knew she would be alive again. She, Even though she had asked them to flee, they had understood the meaning of her name, Phoenix, and they knew she would uh, rise again. So they were there along with Big Eye waiting and watching. And when they saw her, they shouted, Phoenix Okore lives, leave her, let her go. And they started throwing stones at the soldiers, but she pleaded with the villagers to stop because she knew that no matter what happened, even if they gave the big eye a great challenge, at the end of the day, they would get wiped out. And she felt like Wulugu deserved to live, to survive the battle, um, to survive that day, not the battle, but that day. And so she agreed to just go off with um, the big eye. So while they were still in West Africa, she got to meet some of Bumi's family, specifically her father. And you could tell by the way that her father talked that he felt like his daughter was doing great work in America and he felt sorry for Phoenix and he prayed for Phoenix um, if he only knew what his daughter was really doing. And then um, she agreed to go back to the United to the United States, but she um, wouldn't get on the ship. I forgot why she wouldn't get on the ship. I believe they didn't want her on the ship, and she couldn't get it a, get in a plane with her wings. So they injected her with some nano chips that would be like GPS, and she followed the ship um, willingly. Um, Boomy tried to to convince her that they could quote unquote cure her. And Phoenix had to laugh at that one, like, cure me of what? So she was on her way back towards the United States following the ship. But as always, Phoenix had her own mind, her own plan about how things would go. So now Phoenix finds herself out over the waters ripples and royals the waves of the Atlantic Ocean again and there's a great wind an angry type of wind but it's moving her in the right direction all she has to do is follow the big eye ship and keep her wings open as the winds take her back to her false home in America so during this time she has a lot of time to just think and she decides to tell her story, the book of Phoenix, although it's an unfinished story because it doesn't finish until she's finished. And she knows if she strays too far from the ship below, they'll come after her in their helicopters with their weapons and their fearful, self-entitled intent. How real is that? So she just shuts down her system, tightening up her stomach into that knot again, no straining of her muscles, just flying naturally because now she's stronger than she was when she first left the United States. She also knows she would have been a good weapon if she didn't have a humanness about her. 
a brain that could remember the death after death after death after death. She's listening to the calm of the water and fantasizing about maybe even getting her wings wet, dropping into it, wondering if her wings got too wet, would she be able to fly? Or would the water pull her into its great belly as it had so many other Africans on unwanted journeys? And the ma'afa comes to mind when I read that line. But she feels good when she inhales the fresh air, the fresh seawater air that helps her brain and her spirit vibrate because she is understanding that she is much more than she was before. She's not that weak phoenix scared of them and what they would do and whatever. She knows that she has some power about herself. And she gets into thinking about Saeed. So much is lost, but all is never lost, not everything. So she's thinking and thinking and thinking, and the wind was gusting so loudly that she couldn't hear the winged man come around, but she sensed him. And there he was, flying right below her, slightly to her right. And he finally spoke to her in the tree language of the Ghanaian people. He was laughing at her, kind of. Phoenix the Okore, returning to the United States of America, the prodigal daughter. And she got a little bit aggravated with that because Tower 7 isn't her home. Not her real birthplace. She just, you know, offended by it because it... So much had happened to her. And he told her, yes, but Tower 7 was the place of your creation. Just fact. Nothing to love or hate about it. It's just a fact. Like, relax. Get your emotions out of it, Phoenix. She relaxed and appreciated his company. And the fact that with him around, she really didn't have to fly that hard because his air kind of helped her float even better so she started asking him questions like how did you get here and who are you and he just let her know not all questions actually have answers some questions don't have answers and she says she knew and he also let her know he knew what she was planning and that she had no intention of letting them take her to tower six and she didn't, she was like, how did he know that? Oh, gosh, he can read my mind. And he just let her know, like, they can track you wherever you go. And that he was there to show her how he got there. Because she had the power to do it, too. And he let her know that she could have some fun with this. So she's like, do what? Like, what do you, she had no idea what he was talking about. So he let her know that she wasn't what he is, that he was immortal, that he couldn't die, but she was super mortal, that she could live and die to live and die again. She was a specimen, a beacon, and a reaper, life and death, hope and redemption. And in her mind, she said villain too. And then he clearly could read her mind because he said that is decided by your actions, Phoenix, not by your thoughts. So If you think you're a villain, but your actions aren't villainous, are you really a villain? She could only decide whether or not she would follow through on her thoughts. We have a lot of thoughts. A lot of thoughts. 
but it's what we follow through with, the actions we take, because we can change our minds. We can think a new thought. That's one of our powers as human beings. You don't even got to be Phoenix, me and you listening in. We have the power to change our mind. We don't have to follow through on the bad thoughts that we have. We have the power to change them. So with Phoenix, that's big because she's a Phoenix. So he told her her actions will decide whether or not she's a villain. Because she could be if she decides to be. But she doesn't have to. And he said he wanted her to remember the ends and the beginnings of birth and death. Remember. So she's trying to think, why is he talking, you know, these riddles, birth and death. So she remembered the times that she died and came back to life and died and came back to life. And then she remembered that there was something different about when she died at Kofi's house. And he told her that she found it. Good, you found it. But she didn't find it. He didn't tell her exactly what it was. So he gave her another clue. He said that he lives outside of life and death. So he can slip through time and space. She lives inside life and death. So she can do the same. And then she's thinking, she looked up at the moon and it was like in a tiny sliver, like an opening, a cut into another place. And that was when she remembered the black slit of otherness when she had put her hand through that black opening when she was trying not to look at Kofi's disintegrating body and she looked at the black slit she didn't realize that that slit was something she could control and then he let her know that that was something that she could control so she was excited now she hadn't had plans like she didn't know exactly how she was going to do it but now that she could slip through space and time it was on so now it's today and it's the afternoon and up ahead she can see the american coast and the big eye on the ship below her signaling her to come and land she took one last look at the coast of miami and then she did as the wingman told her she could do she slipped through space and time <laughs> and she knew exactly where she was on her way to Phoenix was headed straight for Chicago, where Tower Number One was located. Tower Number One is where they created their first abomination from an adopted, quote unquote adopted, 10 year old girl from Ethiopia. They believed, the scientists believed, that she was a traceable, direct descendant of mitochondrial Eve and thus carried the complete genetic blueprint of the entire human race. On top of that, she was afflicted with hyperthymesia, which is an extremely rare condition that made her able to remember every moment of her entire life. They called her Lucy and destroyed any records that had her real given name at birth. To the big eye scientists, the girl was the complete great book of humanity. So... They did two things with her. One, they made a perfect clone of her because she was the great book. They had to make a backup to the great book, right? Then they tried to make her immortal by reprogramming her DNA not to age. She lived for 11 years as a 10-year-old. And when she was 21, 
She escaped and threw herself off the roof of Tower One. She just was done. And they still had Lucy number two. So to them, her case was deemed a great success. From that point on, the programs in Tower One got money from everywhere. That's how Tower One begat Tower Two through Seven. Behind all their quote-unquote good intentions and amazing science was abomination. Weapons used in their quest for immortality. How far could human beings go? Mm. The foundation of all the towers was always, 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 always corruption driven by lusty greed. So now that she knows how to slip in and out of space and time, her efforts in Tower One are epic. From her reading about the towers, she knows exactly where to go. The most extreme research is done on the middle floors. So that's where she heads to and she encounters other abominations within Tower One craving freedom. And with her help, she sets them free. One young man in particular with cybernetic arms makes sure to bring down Tower One when it's all said and done. And then she's off to NYC to carry out her quote-unquote villainous plans. She makes sure to return to a time and a space before she's out over that Miami ship so that they don't question where she is, that they still think they know where she is, which is above the ship in the Atlantic Ocean. And she plans to destroy the city completely like the evil villain she's believed, she believes she was created to be. Her thoughts and plans are interrupted by her friend Muro when he asks, is this what they've made you? She was so glad to see his familiar face that she just burst out crying. She just was crying. She's feeling a lot. She's feeling a lot. It's just heavy. The whole thing is heavy. And I guess she figured she would get some kind of relief if she just did something evil back to them. But she's not thinking about how many other innocent people will be harmed if she does what they what she feels like they created her to do. So Mio interrupts her with his question, is this what they've made of you? And um, he let her know the winged man had advised him she would show up there. And in just a few minutes, he showed up too. So it was the three of them. And the two of them were questioning her villainous thoughts and plans, asking her, are you going to kill everyone in the city? And they were trying their best to discourage her from becoming what Big Eye wanted her to be, an evil weapon. But she didn't care what they had to say. She was speaking from a place of so much pain. She had lost Saeed. She had lost Kofi. She had lost her happy home, her community in Ghana, West Africa. She was created in Tower 7. She had been through so much physical, mental, emotional, every kind of pain. She told them just leave. She didn't care what they had to say. She was going to do what she planned to do. And that was it. But then she was interrupted by another voice asking her, should I leave too? And she turned 
and she saw Saeed standing there dressed in a simple white dashiki and pants. Saeed. Wow.